0: Hello, all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, A Priest Goes to War, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on your YouTube or audio burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And it's now available for streaming on iHeartRadio. In 1942, a candidate for the priesthood with a college degree left the seminary and joined the Marine Corps as a buck private. Landing on a fire-swept Pacific Island a year later, he lost his life, and then his country lost him. Our hero in today's story remains a missing-in-action MIA after over 75 years. Stay tuned, and we'll provide you with the details of this special story with an even more unbelievable twist at the end. All of us here at the Foundation want to dedicate this episode to our loyal listeners from the Arlington, Texas, Police Department, current and retired, who have just become big subscribers to our podcast. May the heroes of Arlington continue to remember the heroes of yesterday. And now, on with our show. Today's episode is from case number 0426 in the investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. Edward Augustine Nalazek, or Eddie as he was known to his family, was a college graduate who left the seminary where he was studying for the priesthood and enlisted in the Marine Corps. He was killed in action on Tarawa in 1943. His body was identified after the battle and buried in a marked recorded and numbered grave on that desolate island. Then, he was lost until 2015 when he was found, but he still remains officially missing in action over four years after he was found. Stay tuned while we fill you in on the incredible details of this case on today's No Home for Heroes. Eddie Nalizak was well, not quite 71 inches tall, about 70 and three-quarters. He was born on 26 March 1916. He weighed somewhere between 162 and 170 pounds. He was born in Illinois, and he had a very rare blood type, AB. About 5% of the American population has AB blood type. Eddie stated he was born in Chicago, Illinois. His date of birth is confirmed by the Cook County, Illinois, birth records. Both of Eddie's parents were born in Poland. He was a very handsome young man, according to his college yearbook photograph. He had long, medium brown hair and a sparkling countenance. At the time of the 1930 census, Eddie was living with his parents, Frank and Catherine Nalizak, two younger sisters and a younger brother on Custer Street in Chicago. They soon moved to North Campbell Avenue in Chicago, and the house still stands there. It was built in 1887. Eddie's father worked for the Harvester Company at that time. Eddie graduated from Chicago's Weber High School in 1934. Weber High School still there, in the exact same spot where Eddie attended school. Eddie moved to St. Louis after graduating from Weber High School, where he enrolled in St. Louis University. He graduated from St. Louis University in 1938 with a Bachelor of Arts degree. Eddie's yearbook photo in college shows him wearing the collar of a Catholic priest, which indicates that he had been accepted as a candidate to attend the Catholic seminary. In 1939, Eddie moved to Prince George's County, Maryland, where he ba- began attending the Kita Ray Seminary. When Eddie registered for the draft in 1940 in Prince George's County, Maryland, He stated that he was a student at the Keita Ray Seminary, and he gave his, you know, height and weight a little bit more than what officially it would become. He stated he was 72 inches tall and even 6 feet, and he weighed 170 pounds. In 1942, Eddie returned home to Chicago for some reason, and then he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps on 18 March 1942 and received the rank of private. The term of his enlistment was four years. Eddie listed his residence in Chicago and his mother as Catherine Nalazak as his, nested, his next of kin. Eddie completed all the necessary paperwork to receive U.S. government life insurance. Private Nalazac completed his United States Marine Corps basic training with the 5th Recruit Battalion at the Marine Corps base in San Diego, California. After graduation from basic training in July 1942, Private Nalizek was assigned as a student at the Radio Operator School, radio company Signal Battalion at San Diego, California. On 7 August 1942, Private Nalazek made application to attend Officer Candidate School in Quantico, Virginia. A physical examination at that time found him, quote, physically qualified for candidate class and for duty at sea and in the field, end quote. Unfortunately, Eddie's appointment to OCS, Officer Candidate School, was never approved, probably because all of his performance records indicate that his ratings in military efficiency was never really very high. Private Malazek was promoted to Private First Class, PFC, on 28 August 1942, and transferred to the headquarters company, 2nd Pioneer Battalion, then stationed at Camp Elliott, San Diego. By uh, October 1942, this unit had been redesignated as the Headquarters Company, 2nd Battalion, 18th Marines Engineers. PFC Nalizak was assigned to the command post of his unit where he likely was given duty as a radio operator. Many in PFC Nalizak's unit served in the Guadalcanal Canal Campaign during late 1942, but it's not known if PFC Nalizak was a member of the company then who saw action on Tulagi, Florida Island, In Gabavutu. By April 1943, PFC Nalizak's units was stationed in Judgeford Camp near Wellington, New Zealand for a period of rest, refit, and training in preparation for the invasion of Tarawa. We know that PFC Nalizak was with his unit at that time. On 12 October 1943, PFC Nalizak was transferred from the headquarters company to D Company, that's Dog Company, sometimes referred to as Delta Company. 2nd Battalion, 18th Marines, and designated to participate in the Tarawa landings in support of the Landing Team Headquarters, 2nd Marines. PFC Nalazak boarded the USS Biddle in Wellington Harbor on 18 October 1943 for a period of amphibious landing training along the New Zealand coast. On 1 November 1943, PFC Nalazak and his unit departed Wellington, New Zealand on board the USS Biddle. For additional amphibious training in fading the New Hebrides Islands before continuing on to Tarawa. PFC Nalzac was assigned to accompany the landing team for the 2nd Battalion 2nd Marines during the initial assault on Tarawa on 20 November 1943. His unit was designated to land in the very center of what was called Red Beach II. Between 9 10 a.m and 9 a.m On the morning of November 20th, 1943, members of the landing team of the 2-2 attempted to land on the beach under heavy defensive fire. Here's an excerpt from the actual after-action report describing the efforts to land on Red Beach 2. Quote, elements of the first wave were landing on the beaches between 0910 and 0922 landing Team 3-2 on Beach Red 1, landing Team 2 on Beach Red 2, and landing Team 2-8 on Beach Red 3. The Marines were landing. There were heavy enemy resistance, and some amphibian tractors were stopped by enemy fire prior to reaching the beach. Owing to the reefs and the heavy defensive in- installations on Tarawa, the assault was made initially by troops carried and amphibious tractors fitted with machine guns. These waves were followed up by troops in boats and by light and medium tanks transported in landing craft mediums, end quote. Another after-action report was found by researchers from Foundation, which provides even more specific details on the headquarters company of Landing Team 2-2, of which PFC Nalazek was a member. Quote, The headquarters of landing team 2-2 was initially divided into two tactical groups. Each group consisted of a fairly complete command post group. One group was under the commanding officer. The other group was under the executive officer. The commanding officer's group landed west of the pier at H plus one hour. The commanding officer was killed before reaching the beach, and casualties were heavy throughout this group. The executive officers group landed at H plus 15 minutes on Beach Red 1. Some personnel were detailed to augment the left flank of Landing Team 3-2. A TBY station, which was a radio effort, was established and managed to relay traffic from Landing Team 3-2 and later other units to the command team of the 2nd Battalion. The remainder of Landing Team 2-2 headquarters landing at intervals throughout the day at various points on Red Beach 1. The elements of landing Team 2 headquarters, which landed on Red Beach 1, did so because of extremely heavy fire being delivered on Red Beach 2. Even so, the landing vehicle tracks, or LVTs, were under constant fire all the way in to Red Beach 1. End quote. Foundation researchers found two references to the death of Private First Class Mount Nalizak and some of his buddies. Per Marine PFC Aurevind J. Bowden, he was attached to the D Company also 2nd Battalion, 18th Marines. He said quote for me when our Amtrak was hit my part of the action at Batio ended before I even got there. For many hours I waited for pickup and hoped for transfer back to the transport for naval medical care. Five of us managed to get under and behind the Amtrak when it was stuck on the reef. Two of my buddies, Lazari and Nalazak, tried on separate occasions to leave the refuge provided by the Amtrak, but they were shot and killed by the enemy as they attempted their escape." End quote. There's another account by PFC Marine Charles Wysaki who was stationed with Headquarters Company, 2nd Battalion, 18th Marine. Tony Lazeri died charging up the beach, through some barbed wire, and all the time cussing the Japs until he was cut down by a Jap machine gun. The last I saw of him, he was draped over the barbed wire on the beach at Tarawa. Private Nalazak is listed on his United States Marine Corps Casualty Card as killed in action, on 21 November 1943, this document lists his cause of death as gunshot wounds, and a burial location of quote Central Division Cemetery, 8th Marines, Number Two, Grave Number 34. This burial location was later renamed Cemetery 27. His certificate of death notes the same burial location as the casualty car. and then something incredible happened. Cemetery 27, with an estimated 49 burials containing Marines and sailors who died attempting to land on Tarawa's bloody beaches, including Private First Class Eddie Nalizak, was simply lost. Yeah, you me right. An entire cemetery with 29 burials was lost. It was likely built over by the expanding military effort to enlarge the airfield and the port facilities of Tarawa for the continued war effort. Eddie became one of 24 named and recorded individuals and 16 unidentified individuals buried in the first row of Cemetery 27, which later became known as the Lost Cemetery. In October 2012, a six-person team from the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command or JPAC, accompanied by representatives of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, conducted an excavation in a location identified during my tenure at JPAC as being associated with Cemetery 27. JPAC was unsuccessful in locating 27 on this mission. Foundation researchers then submitted a report to j on 26 November 2012, which noted that PFC Edward Augustine Nalazak was one of the unresolved casualties who were assigned to land on Red Beach 2 or who were last seen there. This location was near the area where Cemetery 27 was reportedly later established. It was only 100 or so yards in from the shoreline. And, as such, The unresolved casualties that we submitted comprised the list of possible matches for any future recoveries should Cemetery 27 be found. An updated and revised report on this issue, including photographs of the mission, was offered by the Foundation to the commander of the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Agency in July 2013. The JPAC commander never chose to respond to our offer. Later during a construction project in March nineteen correction, March twenty fifteen, on Tarawa, Cemetery twenty-seven was finally discovered underneath the parking lot, only a few feet from the JPAC excavation in 2012. On 2 July 2015, a representative of the contractor who was paid by the Department of Defense to excavate Cemetery 27 posted PFC Nalazek's name on the internet in a list of 30 individuals recovered by the contractor from Cemetery 27. As of the date of today's episode, nine sets of remains recovered from Cemetery 27 in 2015 are still awaiting identification by the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency's laboratory. Those awaiting identification include five of the original 16 unknowns buried in Cemetery 27 and four listed casualties. Listed means we know their names. PFC Nalizak is one of the remaining four most likely listed casualties buried in Cemetery 27 who has yet to be identified by the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. So. As we air this episode today, the remains of PFC Eddie Nalazek, the priest who became a Marine rifleman, lies in a cardboard box in a storage room at the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency's Honolulu, Hawaii Laboratory. Why is this so? Could it be that the DPAA Laboratory is incredibly inept? Hmm. Well... Something has caused something to happen that even the inept DPAA laboratory can't identify PFC Eddie Nalizak after over four years since his recovery. Unbelievable. Even as late as this week, we continue to assist the remainder of Eddie's family in their search for answers. Sadly, his last remaining sister has passed away while waiting for news. That Eddie was finally coming home. Hey, here's an idea for the Department of Defense. If you can't identify Eddie from the remains recovered in 2015 from the exact grave number in Cemetery 27 where Eddie was recorded as being buried in 1943, how about just telling Eddie's family exactly who or what was in that grave? If we and every other historian in the world, and we and every other individual or company or group or organization that has worked on Eddie's case, if we are all wrong, and Eddie was not located in 2015, then the family deserves to know that information as well. We don't mind being wrong, as long as Eddie is found somewhere. But then... If you did that, you'd have to explain why the average length of time between finding remains and their identification by the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency is an incredible 11 years. You know, we have a phrase for that in Texas, which loosely translated is the same as, quote, male bovine excrement, end quote. We'll let our listeners figure that out. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to Listen Free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts, and now even iHeartRadio. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday. When we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. You sure don't want to miss our next episode with another true story about one of our missing American heroes. Just like the box of Cracker Jack when you were a kid, there's a surprise in every episode. Tune in to hear it for yourself next week on No Home for Heroes. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that Poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them.